God, what a blessing it is to just simply worship you and say, you are good. Father, we just praise you for what you've done for us and just the blessings that we have. God, we're thankful that you sent us your son, Jesus, who alone is worthy of praise. Father, we just thank you that he is the light in this dark world. He is the king, and he is still reigning over all. God, help us to just believe what we sing, believe these words that we just worshiped with or we worshiped you with. God, I pray that you use me as I speak this morning, that you just uh, empty me of myself, Father, and just fill me with your spirit. I pray that it won't be me talking, but it will be your spirit using me and, and speaking through me. God, we just thank you so much for what you've done for us and the forgiveness and the love that you've shown us. So in your name we pray, amen. Well, I almost said you may be seated, so if you're at home standing, <laughs> I guess you can be seated. <laughs> Thanks, Robbie. So I was going to sit the whole time, and then I recorded myself, and I saw how fidgety I was, and by nature I like to move around a bit. Uh, so let me just set up here a little bit, and then we'll get started. I feel like a lot of times in, in times of trials and times of, of just things that don't go according to plan, it, it just makes me change my thinking. And I've really just been thinking a lot about the blessings that I have for myself that, that God's given me this week. And just the blessing that I have a job, that I have a, we have a church building where uh, it's empty now, I'm looking around and it, it is a little sad, it's a little awkward just kind of looking at a, a little iPad here. But just some of the blessings that we have and that we are loved and we are still children of God. What an encouragement that is in just these times that are, are confusing and just these weird times. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to pick up in verse 12. I'm going to read to the end until, until the beginning of chapter 4. So Philippians 3, we'll start at verse 12. As you're turning there, I want to remind you of a TV show that maybe you forgot about. Back in 2001, there was a show called The Amazing Race that aired. And to this day, there's been over 31 seasons, and they actually had plans of renewing it for 2019 into 2020, but I haven't heard much about it, so maybe they finally canceled it. I don't know. But what it is, it's a race around the world in which 11 teams of two people, so it's you and a partner, um, what you have to do is you have to solve clues by interacting with locals. You have to overcome these mental and physical obstacles all for this cash prize. And I believe the cash prize, one time it was a million dollars. I'm not sure if it's that every year or it was every year. But uh, something about this is it was so popular that when I was in youth group, when I was in middle school and high school, the youth leaders, they adopted this game or this show into our youth group. And they called it the Youth Group Amazing Race Edition. And what we had to do was race around the community, Lake Grove, Center Reach, Selden, St. James, Ronkonkoma, uh, used to talk at all these different places, solving riddles, solving clues, uh, going up to strangers sometimes and just asking them to you know, take a picture with us or do something really random like that. And we would go to different people's houses in the church. And uh, something that just, I, I can't brag about that, how good I was at it. My team every year came in dead last. So all throughout middle school and high school, all I knew was defeat. And when we had the amazing race, I was like, here we go. I could have had the fastest driver, the fastest team, the smartest team. For some reason, we kept losing. And there was one time where youth group ended at 9 o'clock, and they wanted us back by about 8.30, 8.45. And they called us at 8.30, and they said, where are you? And I think we were still on like the fourth clue, and there were like 10 clues. So they just said, listen, it's, it's over for you. I mean, just come back to church, have some snacks, you know, and enjoy last place. So this is the game that I have now have the pleasure of, of leading with a youth group. Uh, it's something that we still do to this day, and we've done it this, this past year, I guess 2019, and we just have them run around, and, and I can gladly say I'm not in last place anymore, uh, mainly because I don't go in it, but I'm sure if I had a team, I'd still finish last. And this is something that also the women's ministry held uh, not too long ago. They did their own amazing race. So 
You might be asking, you know, why am I bringing up this, this old or outdated TV show or maybe a show you've never heard? Why am I bringing up The Amazing Race? Well, as we continue through the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, we're going to see that Paul brings up the analogy of running a race. So I want to call today's sermon this. If, if I had a title, it would be this. The Amazing Race, the Christian Life Edition. So if you have your Bibles, again, Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 21. Let's read that together. <clears throat> Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies, ahead, lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the, of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. With mindset on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So in these nine or so verses that I just read, there's a lot of meat here. There's a lot of things that Paul brings up. And he brings up specifically two ideas. This first idea is, is running a race. And then towards the end, we read about our citizenship being in heaven. So just for today, we're going to focus on the first half of, of, of us just running this race. And we'll revisit our citizenship in heaven in a few weeks on Easter morning. So if you've read through the New Testament, if you're familiar with Paul, you can't help but think that he might be a sports fan. Or at the very least, he knew about sports, maybe because of the ancient Olympics and just things going on in the culture. He wasn't like hiding in a room all day, oblivious to what was going on around him. He knew the culture. So if you look in your Bible, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 to 27, Paul uses yet another sports analogy. He says this. He, he talks about how some people run a race for a perishable crown. And nowadays in the Olympics, you get a gold medal, you get a silver medal, you get a bronze medal. But back in the ancient days, they had that ivory, uh, like that, that green ivy crown that was put around your head. So you literally got a crown of plants that would eventually die. And he says, we are not to run for what is perishable. He also talks about, in that same uh, chapter, about boxing and beating the air, uh, also known as shadow boxing. It's a technique that boxers use to just stay in shape and they just randomly swat at the air. But if you do that in a fight, it's dangerous, it'll get you tired, it has no effect. It's simply waving your hands around with no effect at all. In 2 Timothy 4.7, Paul uses another analogy. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. Ephesians 6.12, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. So again, as we read these few verses, Philippians 12 to Philippians 16, Paul tells us to think about our race, or think about our life as running a race with Jesus Christ at the finish line. And here are a few things that Paul tells us that we need to run this, way, run this race well. So if you're taking notes, there's going to be four different ideas that, that Paul gives us here. The first one is this. We need dissatisfaction. And you heard me right. We need dissatisfaction. I know immediately your mind goes to, man, I think, I don't know if I agree with that. Jesus, we're supposed to be satisfied in Jesus. We're supposed to, you know, not want anything or anyone other than Jesus. And that's true. But look what he says in verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. And if you weren't here last week, I highly suggest go online. You can watch the last stream from last week. We had a, a guest uh, pastor, Pastor Jason Toth, come in, and he preached about the first half of, of Philippians chapter 3, where Paul is just saying we shouldn't have confidence in our flesh. We shouldn't be boasting about our works or our deeds. 
And what Paul does is he lists all his accomplishments. He says if anybody can boast about how good of a Jew they are or how good of a person they are morally, he said no one, no one can top me. And he gives, the, the, he gives us a list of things. And in verse 5 he says, Circumcised on the eighth day, a people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And last week Pastor Jason reminded us that Paul thought he was doing the Jews a great thing by stopping Christianity, by stopping the church, because in his mind, they were enemies of God. They did not like Jesus. So here we have Paul. He's saying, don't boast in your flesh. And at at the end of his list of accomplishments, he says this in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I count it loss for the sake of knowing Christ. So everything that he held on to, everything that he, he could have clinged to, he says, it's not worth it in pursuit of Jesus. So Paul's reminding the Philippian church that he is not perfect, nor has he obtained what we would call total sanctification. Now, sanctification is a Bible word. It's a, it's a church word. It's a, you could say it's, it's Christianese. Most people will use it or say it and not really know what they're saying. But sanctification simply means it's the process of becoming holy. It's the process of becoming more like Jesus. And we will never reach total sanctification here on earth. That happens when we go before Jesus and we spend eternity with him in in heaven. So Paul is telling the people, listen, you might think I'm perfect. You might think I've reached it. I'm at the finish line. He says, I'm not. And he also knows that people have seen these crazy miracles that he's done as well. And I just went back in the book of Acts and read Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20. And there are some really crazy things that God allowed Paul to do, that God empowered Paul to do. So a really weird story. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is actually preaching to the people. He's out on the street. He's talking to people uh, just out in public, and he, he runs late into the night. It's about midnight, and there's a boy, about 7 to 12 years old. That's what some commentators think. This boy sitting on the third-story ledge of a window, listening to Paul. He nods off. He, he kind of falls asleep. He falls from the window and dies. Now Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he's a physician. He's a doctor. He wrote that this boy died, and I think he is qualified to say that or not. So not only do we see that this, this person has literally fell from just, like imagine just someone sitting in the balcony and they fall down. You'd probably panic. It would just be like, what, oh, this is not good. What do we do? Paul goes over to this person. He brings them back to life with the power of God, and then he continues to preach. So he just takes a moment. He's like, all right, hang on. I got this. Let me just seal him. And then he goes back to preaching. It's just these crazy things that Paul did, his accomplishments, his miracles. Again, it could have made some people and some people in the church assume that he made it, that he's on the finish line, that he's totally sanctified, that he's crossed, crossed that line. In verse 12, again, Paul's saying, I haven't obtained it. I'm not there. I don't want there to be any confusion. I am not there. And if we continue reading verse 12, I just want to pause for a moment and just find comfort in what Paul says. In verse 12, he says this, But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Just ponder that today. Ponder it for a second now. The Bible's clear. We fall short. There's nothing attractive about us outside of being in Christ when God looks at us. We are sinners We are not worthy of God. We're not worthy to be in his presence because of our sin. But if we're in Christ, we are worthy. If we're in Christ, we're we're justified. We are covered. We, We have Christ's righteousness on us. His blood covers us. So even in all of our sin, and as Christians, we still sin. When we're Christians, we're not magically perfect. We still fall short. We still sin. We but what we do is we we repent. We continue to put our hope and our faith and our trust in Jesus. And I just love that Christ Jesus has made me his own. We are still a part of God's family even when we sin if Christ is our Lord and our Savior. So if you're feeling discouraged, just just meditate on those few words. Now getting back to this point of, of point one, being dissatisfied. I'm not saying that we should live our life in a negative or hopeless or joyless way. But Paul is saying that there is a danger when you are running a race and you start to get content with your pace. Runners who are content, they tend to slow down without even realizing it. 
I'm going to be using a lot of metaphors and a lot of truths about runners and running. I am not a runner, nor do I really think I look like a runner, um, but I've reached out to people who do run, and I've, I've done research. So uh, just take my word for it, but also ask people who run the same thing. If you start to get content with running, you tend to slow down without even realizing it. And as Christians, if you look around at all the other Christians you're passing, maybe your pace is faster than theirs, and you're looking around, you're like, man, I'm doing pretty good compared to this person, or like, I, I just zoomed past that person. I don't know what they're doing. Paul says there's a danger in that. There's a danger in be con- being content with your faith, being content with your pace. So you might say things like, man, at least my marriage is healthier than that person's. Or, hey, at least my kids respect me. Or, man, compared to that person, I, I come to church every week. Where have they been? And you might say things like, man, I'm a, I'm a pretty good Christian. I'm, I'm going to keep running this pace. I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm passing all these people on my left and right. Paul's reminding us that our focus should not be on the others around us that we're passing, but our focus should be on that finish line, on Christ. Now, a quick little sidetrack here. Being dissatisfied, it's not always a bad thing. Now, if you think of technology, most tech advances happen because people are not satisfied with the current way that things are. Now, I wasn't there when the wheel was invented, but it had to have this mindset of, hey, there has to be an easier way. I don't want to keep dragging things on the ground. Let me find an easier way to move this. And even, again, this, this, this mindset of, of advancement in technology it's this, this mantra of there has to be a better way. There has to be something better. So again, Paul's reminding us that there is a danger in being content with being satisfied in our faith. Now, if we go back to that term sanctification, most people think of sanctification as walking up a staircase where the bottom of it is when we repent and we're justified and we turn to Christ. That's the start of our sanctification. And it ends at the top when we reach heaven and when we spend an eternity with Jesus or some people think of it of a ladder. So either one you want to use, um, we should be moving in our faith. We should be moving in our, in our sanctification. You know, if you're a new Christian and you, you've, you've repented and you've turned to Christ and, and you've kind of been stale in your faith or you're not growing in your knowledge of Jesus, Paul says that's dangerous. You're, you're being content with your pace. We should be hungry and thirsty for knowing Jesus more, for reading his word. We should be growing closer and being more intimate with him. So there is this danger in being content with where we are. We should be striving, running towards that finish line. And as we mature in our faith, we get to experience Jesus more intimately and and we can worship him more intimately. The The more you know about Jesus, the deeper your worship will be. So again, dissatisfaction, it leads us to wanting to know Christ more knowing that I'm not the best Christian or the, or the most knowledgeable person or my relationship with Jesus is not at its best, that motivates me to keep going, to, to study further, to spend time with Jesus more, to work on my relationship with him. Number one, we need to be dissatisfied. Point number two, we need concentration. We need concentration. In verse 13, the very, very next verse, he says this, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So this phrase, one thing, it shows up other times in the Bible. In Mark chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus is talking to the young rich ruler. This man comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, how do I get eternal life? I've kept all the commandments since my youth. I am morally good. I am morally above the law. And it says this, Jesus says, looking at him and loving him, Jesus says, you lack one thing. Go and sell all your possessions and follow me. So one thing. In Luke chapter 10, verse 41, it's the story of of Martha and Mary. And they have Jesus over their house. And Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, just in awe of the stories, in awe of Jesus. And Martha's getting a little upset. She gets a little sassy. And she's just asking, you know, it's not fair that I can be, that I'm serving by myself and I'm doing all the work. And Jesus tells her, one thing is necessary. And Mary chose it, the one thing. In John chapter 9, 25, the blind man who gets healed from Jesus, he he tells the Pharisees his miracle. He says, one thing I know, for I was blind, but now I see. In Psalm 27, 4, this is the last one. 
David writes this, One thing I ask of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. So again, this this theme of, of one thing. In the world, winners become winners because they're concentrated on one thing. Just think of professional athletes for a minute. Very few, if not any, are just as good as their main sport than with another sport. And I'll explain. So if I, if I say Charles Barkley, most of you, if you know who he is, will think of basketball. He's a basketball player. But have you ever seen his golf swing? You can look it up on YouTube. Don't go now, but maybe go later. And I'm not, I'm not, telling you to, I'm not trying to make fun of the man, but you just can't help but, but laugh or just say, man, how can someone who's so athletic in one sport look like that golfing? I am not a golfer, but I would say I think I'm a little better than his, than his swing. It looks a little better. So again, think of Michael Jordan as well. Uh, the greatest basketball player ever. I don't care if you think LeBron's better. He's not Michael Jordan all the way. But Michael Jordan, he tried playing baseball. He was on the Chicago White Sox. And I have to say, it wasn't a very memorable record. He wasn't very good at baseball. He didn't stand above any other athletes, but he's known for basketball. So again, all the time that athletes have, that professional athletes have, they devote it to that one skill for that one specific sport. And in the Bible, Nehemiah, he went to Jerusalem for one thing, to build the wall. That was his focus. That was his mission. When we spread ourselves way too thin, we fail to be effective at one thing. And that's what Paul's talking about. Focus on one thing. In a little bit, we're going to close with the, the simple chorus of the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. But just the lyric says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. So when we're looking at Jesus, we're focusing on him. We're not getting distracted by the things of the earth. And I just think of the story of Peter walking on water towards Jesus. He, he gets out of the boat. He, he's starting to walk towards Jesus. He's doing it. His eyes are on Jesus. But then he starts to sink because something happens. He takes his eyes off Jesus. He gets distracted by the storm around him. He loses his focus. He starts to sink. And then Jesus, out of grace and love, pulls him up and rescues him. So again, Paul knows that being distracted causes us to stumble. It can cause us to lose our focus on our spiritual race. Paul's telling the church that the one main goal for living is this undistracted pursuit of the fullness of Christ. So one, we need dissatisfaction. Number two, we need concentration. Number three, we need direction. The second part of verse three, the one thing he tells us, which is actually two things, but he says this, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And I want you to think of, the, of Usain Bolt. I think most of us know who he is the fastest man alive. Now, if he ran in the Olympics, but he ran the wrong way around the track while everybody else was running the right way, even if he finished first, and even if he just completely demolished their time, it wouldn't matter. He went the wrong way. Direction matters. Paul tells us the one thing or the two things. So, so part A of the one thing he says is forgetting what lies behind. Now, in the Bible, Forgetting does not mean that you lose your memory, that you have a failure to recall, but it does mean that you, you don't let that influence you. You don't let that past influence you. In Hebrews 8.12, God says this, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. See, God's not forgetful. God is omniscient. He knows everything. He doesn't just be like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, somehow magically erase this and I'm not going to know this. That's not what he meant. He means I'm not going to hold that sin against you if you are in Christ. You are covered by Christ's death on the cross. Now I want you just to picture this. Imagine you're watching a race and there's a runner who's looking backwards the whole time. You know that he's running this way or, and they're just looking this way as they're running the, the whole time and they're not even looking forward. You know how ridiculous that would be? How funny that, that would be? Some of us might laugh and make fun of this person. But it would also be very dangerous for that runner and dangerous for the other runners around him. He could run into an object. This runner could run into another person. Or they could trip and fall and get seriously hurt. So Paul's reminding the church to be an effective Christian 
one who is on mission to make disciples. That is, that is our mission here on earth. You need to forget the past. Now, let, let's pause for a second. There are times in the Bible where we're told to remember the past. So even a few verses earlier in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is reminding us of his past. In Ephesians chapter 2, why don't you turn there, it's just a few pages prior to Philippians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 13, and again, this is Paul, the same person who's writing Philippians. He says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Verse 12, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Paul is telling us to remember. But in Philippians, now he's telling us to forget. And even if you think of your own life, remembering who you were before Christ and seeing how far you've come because of the Holy Spirit and seeing his transformative power, that's powerful. So the question is, when should we forget the past? Where's that line that you draw on the sand of, okay, we're told to remember, but then we're told to forget. It, It can be a little confusing and it's not a contradiction. Here's when you forget the past. When you dwell on things in the past and it hinders your faith and your obedience to Christ in the present. So I'll say it again. When you dwell on things in the past and it starts to hinder your faith and obedience to Christ in the present, we're told to forget that. Some Christians hold on to their past so tightly that they're not able to fulfill the mission that that Jesus gives us today, which is to make disciples. And just going back to what Paul says, he says, if he lists all his accomplishments on the one side, and then if he said, man, I I, want to follow Jesus, but I'm going to bring my accomplishments with me, it's a very selfish mindset, and he's not surrendering to Jesus. He's still trying to hold on to who he was. And the Bible says that in Christ we are a new creation. The the, the new has come and the old has passed. The old is, is gone. It's not still there. It's gone. So again, Paul is encouraging the church to forget what lies behind and to strain forward to what lies ahead. And I got to be honest, as I was reading this and wrestling through this text, I couldn't help but think about our own church and just where we're at right now. I'll be honest with you, my mind wanders to the past a lot. I grew up in this church. I grew up running in these hallways, getting yelled at by, by Mr. Schwamm and uh, getting afraid of, of Mrs. Sabina uh, because, again, I was running around. I was, I was just being a little reckless at the time. I admit I was wrong. But, again, I grew up here. This, this was my church. It is my church still. I, sometimes I think of all the successful ministry programs. I'm like, man, when I'm in the youth group room, I'm like, I just look out that hallway. I'm like, I remember growing up here, and these rooms were full of kids. <clears throat> on the stage I can see who's here at church and who's not I'm not trying to call anybody out don't worry but I can just see that it, it's a lot emptier than when I was sitting there as a kid and it does affect me at times I'm just being honest with you I think of our local outreaches the nativity the church fair all these fun things that we had and we reached out to the community and maybe some of you if you're being honest you do the same thing as me and, and, and your mind wanders and it starts to affect your emotions in the present And you start to cling to the rich history. You cling to the past. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. History is good. Knowing history is good. But it's bad if it distracts us, if it distracts you from moving forward and making disciples in the present. And there's just this phrase that that kills the church. It kills the church globally. This is the phrase. Well, that's the way we've always done things. That's the way we've always done things. What you are saying is you're looking to the past and you're saying, well, I'm not, I'm not willing to look forward and to strive and strain forward towards Jesus because that's the way we've always done things right here. So we're just going to keep running forward and looking back. And having that mindset, when that affects the present, when that affects your mission for Jesus to make disciples, to be salt and light, to preach the gospel, that is an issue. And Jesus had to combat this idea. This is not something that we just face out of the blue randomly. Jesus had to combat these ideas when the Pharisees approached him in Matthew 15, verses 1 to 9. See, the Pharisees were upset that Jesus' disciples 
were eating their food before washing their hands, which was against the traditions. So the Pharisees, they wrote these oral laws, they had written laws that they added to God's authority, to the Ten Commandments, the commandments that God gave the earth. And Jesus answers them because he, they question, you know, Jesus, why do your disciples forsake the traditions? And Jesus hits them with, with this line. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? And a little later he says, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. If we are not careful, that could be us. And I feel like that is a lot of temptation of the church in America and the church globally as a whole. To cling to who we were. That, oh, well, we're just going to do it this way because it's the way it always, we've always done it. But if that starts to hinder our mission, we need to let it go. We need to, to look forward and to strain towards Jesus. You know, could it be that we're too distracted by the good old days and it's made us run in the wrong direction? So usually we pray at the end of the sermon, but I just want to take a quick moment and just, and just pray here. Just a, just a minute, and then we'll get back to the verse. So just join me in prayer. God, I have to admit that there's been times where I've just longed for the past. God, I pray that you just take this away from me. God, that, that if anybody else is feeling this too, that if, if we're afraid to let go, you can give us the boldness to, to let it go, to, to strain forward, to look to you, to, to run in the right direction. The direction matters. God, if we as a church, if we're running the wrong way, I pray that we can repent and turn and run the right way. And I just pray for your church globally right now, Lord, that, that you will encourage leaders to keep running in the right way. God, forgive us. In your name we pray, amen. So that was point one of the one thing he says. Point two is this. He says, and straining forward to what lies ahead. So not only should we forget the past, but we're told to strain forward. And this is the only place in the, in the New Testament where Paul uses this phrase, straining forward. And the word strain, it's, it's a verb. It's an action word, meaning to stretch. Now, in high school and middle school, we did the physical fitness test. I don't know if they still do this at school or not, or if you, growing up, this is something that you did. But it was a bunch of different tests that would just test your ability, your athleticism, and things like that. And you'd do, like, the mile run. You'd do uh, sit-ups. You'd do the shuttle run. You would do um, pull-ups and the flexed arm hang. And then they also had one that was called the sit and reach. And what you would do is you'd sit on your butt, and you would have your legs spread a little bit, and you, with your hands together, you'd reach out forward without bending your knees, and they would know if you're cheating, so they, sometimes they held your knees down. I tried to cheat a few times to get away with it, but they got me every time. But you'd have to reach forward and to a metric unit or, or a measurement, and then that's, they tested like your flexibility. Now, if you've ever done that, I still remember, if you don't warm up, if you just do it, man, you're behind your knee, that muscle's on fire. I would say that you, you strain that muscle, you stretch that muscle by that. So even if you just do stretches, that, that feeling of, of your muscles slowly stretching and things like that, that's what I think of when Paul says to strain forward, to, to, to go all out, to not give up, to push through the pain and to continue the race. Now there's a story of, of a lady named Beth, Beth Ann, and in 1991, she was attempting to qualify for the 1992 Olympic trials. And a female runner had to complete the 27-mile, 385-yard race in less than two hours and 45 minutes. So two hours, 45 minutes, that was her time to beat in order to qualify. So Beth started strong, but around mile 23, she started to struggle. And I would say around 23 seconds into a run, I start to struggle, so she's doing a lot better than me. She reached the final straightaway with just two minutes left. She's 200 yards away from the finish line, and she stumbles. She's dazed. She's on the floor. She's, she's just kind of paralyzed there in confusion, and she stays down for 20 seconds. Now the clock's still ticking. There's less than a minute to go. She begins to stagger to her feet and begin walking. And five yards short of the finish line, she falls again. She collapses. So she begins to crawl, and the, and the crowd's going nuts. The crowd's cheering her on. 
And she crosses the finish line on her hands and knees. And her time was 2 hours, 44 minutes, and 57 seconds. She qualified by 3 seconds. And that's just the depiction I have of straining forward, going all out. Even if it means finishing on your hands and knees, going all out, straining forward. And can we be honest for a minute here? Being a Christian, it's, it's not easy. There are times when we might want to give up. Maybe some of you right now, you're, you've fallen in your race. You're on the ground and you're having trouble getting back up. Or maybe some of you have fallen, you've gotten up, fallen, and you've gotten back up, fallen, and you're just like, how long is this cycle going to last? And maybe some of you have completely just given up the race and you walked off and you're now on the bleachers cheering other Christians on. Here's our, our, our encouragement. In verse 14, Paul says this, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And funny enough, that was actually our church softball motto. So if there's anybody listening who played softball, you should know that verse. So that's our motivation when we fall. That's our motivation when, when we're failing, when we don't want to get back up. That we, we look to the prize at the end of the race. And that prize is spending eternity with our Lord and our Savior in heaven, being fully sanctified, being fully like our teacher, being fully like Jesus. And like I mentioned before, I don't run. I've never enjoyed running. And I really don't understand how people can find it fun. I, I'm not, not trying to judge you, but I just, I don't get it. But I know this, that eventually in every uh, race, or when people run for long distances, the runners face a wall. And all runners face this wall. And what it is, it's a mental and it's a physical battle that you have to overcome. Your mind tells you to give up. Your body's weakened. Your, your bones feel as if they're on fire. And getting past this wall is a victory that most runners then find energy and joy once they overcome it. And this is where we get this term runner's high. And it's just this, this, this rush of endorphins and adrenaline and, and just joy and energy that you get when you push past that wall. And my question is this, is, is there a wall that you are facing in your life right now? Has it distracted you from the prize? Is it, is it covering the finish line from your eyesight? That joy of being with Christ forever. And my last point, point number four, can help us with this wall. Point four, we are not meant to be alone. So one, we need dissatisfaction. Two, we need um, uh, concentration. Number three, I totally blanked, hang on. (laughs) Number three, we need concentration. Number four, we're not meant to be alone. In verses 15 and 16, Paul writes this in, in Philippians 3. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now the words that Paul uses, he uses words like us, and we. And these are plural words. These are words that point to togetherness. You see, Paul understood the importance of Christians being in community, being together as a church. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 44, after the Holy Spirit comes upon Peter and he preaches the gospel at Pentecost, um, we just see that the church explodes, that there are 3,000 people being baptized. And in in verses 42 and 44 of Acts chapter 2, it says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Even earlier in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, Paul mentions the idea of being together, of having unity. And I'll just read that real quick. He says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being the same mind. So being together, having the same mind, unity of mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So there isn't a verse in the Bible that says, Thou shalt go to church every week. 
You can look, you're not going to find that. But it's really hard if you are reading God's word, and it's really hard to argue and say, yeah, I don't really think I need to be uh, in fellowship with other Christians. I don't really think I need church. I'll just, you know, I'll do my own thing on Sundays. I got to say, are you reading the same words that I am reading? Paul, Paul is combating this idea of, of, of just in, in chapter 2 here, and then also the very, church, uh, the very first church in Acts. It's hard to one another when you're by yourself. Or I'll make a catchy motto. It's, it's hard to one another when there is no other. Someone's probably said that already. I, I, I probably didn't make that up, so I can't take credit. But here's a simple truth going back to the real world. Runners do better when they run with other people. It, it's, it's proven. They have accountability. They have inspiration. They have encouragement. They can also challenge each other and push each other to their limits and, and maybe past their limits. And the main point is this. Do not run your race alone. Don't do it. Not only is it dangerous for you, but it's being disobedient to God's word. As Christians, we were created to be in fellowship with each other and fellowship with God. Even our primary mission, Jesus' last words that he spoke to, to us on earth, to his apostles on earth, was to go and make disciples. And it's really hard to make disciples if you don't talk to people, if you don't want to be around people. So even our mission from God to make disciples from Jesus says we need to go and be with other people. And I'll be honest, these past few weeks, they've been crazy. There, there's a lot of unknowns. We, even for youth group, we're, we're doing all these weird different things. We did Instagram Live. We did a, a Zoom call the other night. And you really take for, for, take for granted the blessings you've had. I mean, just being here, looking at the church, being empty. I mean, Stephanie's there, Robbie and Darla are here. But it's, it, it just feels like I, I miss you guys. You know, I, I miss the community. I miss just, just having conversations with people. Even canceling our physical services, canceling our church activities, it wasn't a simple decision. It's not like the elders were like, yeah, we're just going to cancel it. It'll be fine. No, this was a decision that was really prayed over. They prayed over this. They, they, some of them might have even wept over it. Again, Although we can't physically be together, we can still be the church. And yes, this is not ideal. Yes, this is not perfect. But we can still be salt and light for Jesus. We can still have fellowship in other ways. I encourage you, this week, call somebody. I don't like speaking on the phone. But, on, but this past week, I was on the phone a lot more, I would say, uh, probably the most times I was on the phone in my life. Just talking to people. Reach out, see how they're doing. Send a letter. When was the last time you handwritten a letter to someone? Maybe send an encouraging email. FaceTime. We have technology. We can, we can stay in contact with each other. Again, let's, let's use this time to find a unique and, and different ways of, of loving our neighbors that can make the world look at us and can look at the church with awe and wonder. And we're not... We're not doing this to give up. We're not giving up by, by postponing and canceling our church services. We're, we're not giving up. We're not, we, we haven't fallen and we're on the ground. This, this, is not, this is not ideal. But again, this is just a different way that God can use us to be Christians and to make disciples. I saw on Facebook, and I can't take credit for this quote, but it says this, just because you have to practice social distancing doesn't mean you should be practicing spiritual distancing. And if you're struggling right now, reach out to me. Reach out to your elders. Reach out to a fellow brother and sister in the Lord, someone that you trust. Again, do not run the race by yourself. It is dangerous. And not only that, but God, uh, the Bible says that God gives us gifts, gifts, uh, supernatural gifts to use for the church, to use for other people, like gifts of hospitality, gifts of, of service, gifts of, of love, things like that. And it's really selfish to not use your gift for the church. You're hurting the church. You're hurting yourself. You're being disobedient. And what I want to do is I want to end with a, a really weird story. And it's the story of a man named Cliff Young. In 1983, Australia held an ultra-marathon. 
Now, a regular marathon is 26 miles, which is crazy. That, that's nuts. No one should run that long. This ultra marathon was 542.7 miles. Over 150 world-class athletes who were training years for this event came to participate. They're, they're at their registration table. They're signing up. They're in all their gear. Out from the crowd comes this 61-year-old toothless potato farmer and Australian local shepherd. He walks up in the re- to the registration table in his work overalls and his work boots, and he asks for a number. Now, I could imagine the people at registration probably didn't think he was serious. They probably laughed and said, okay, all right, real funny, all right, move along, come on. But after a bit, he finally got his number, and he was in the race. He was number 64. And as the gun went off, the other racers started. And old Cliff Young took off with this leisurely, odd shuffle. And it looks something like this. I'm going to embarrass myself, but I don't care. His, his shuffle looks something like this. All right? That, that speed, like I'm not exaggerating, maybe slightly faster, but that was his shuffle. At the end of the first day, he was well behind the other racers who were running. But he didn't give up. He kept running. Eventually, Cliff Young crossed the finish line in five days, 15 hours, and four minutes later, winning the race. This man won the race. He didn't win it by a few minutes or by a few hours, but he won the race by nine hours, 56 minutes. And how did he win? The other racers had been training to run for 18 hours straight, and then they'd sleep for the rest of the five hours. Now, there weren't any rules that said you had to do that, but they found that it was the most energy-efficient way, and most runners ran that way, and they slept. But Cliff Young didn't do this. No one told him that's what he had to do, or that's what was recommended. So for five, almost six days straight, he ran without sleep. He became a national hero. Later, running experts studied his technique, and many long-distance runners have now adapted his shuffle because it's proven to be energy efficient and aerodynamic, and it's called the Young Shuffle. It's a real thing. And what people didn't know about Cliff was that he was a farmer. He owned 2,000 acres of land, and he had about 2,000 sheep to keep track of. There was no four-wheel drive or any sort of vehicles, so when storms came, violent storms, he was out in the field for days straight, running to collect and to herd his sheep to protect them from the elements in muck, in mud, and in just not good conditioned soil or ground. And he was wearing work boots and overalls. That, that's what he did. Cliff Young also didn't know that there was a cash prize of $10,000. And to make the story even more unbelievable, which it is, it is a real story, but it, again, it would be like a perfect Hallmark movie. He, he refused that money. And what he did is he gave it, he split it five ways with the first other five racers that finished after him. So he took zero dollars because he didn't know, and he felt bad because other people were training, and he just showed up one day and ran. And what's the point of this crazy story? Here's the point. Victory comes by endurance. Victory comes by endurance. Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by, a, by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Victory comes by endurance. The Christian life is not a hundred-yard dash. Stop treating it that way. It's an ultra-marathon. And this idea of sanctification, it's a long, lifelong process that's never truly finished until we reach heaven. We simply endure because Jesus endured. And right now, we're enduring. We as a church, like I said, we're we're not giving up. We are enduring what's going on, and we're not giving up. Again, Jesus took the cross on our behalf so that we don't have to, that there's, there'll be no punishment for our sin. And what I mean by that is he came and died for us. 
We as sinners, we deserve death. The Bible is clear that none of us are good. That when God sees us, he sees us as sinners. And, and sin needs punishment. When we sin against an eternal, holy, perfect God, the sin, or the punishment I should say, is eternal. You know, it's not what we've done, but it's who we've sinned against. And only a perfect Savior, only God himself, could appease that eternal punishment. And that's what Jesus did. He perfected. He's the perfecter of our faith. He endured the cross for our behalf so that we don't need to. Maybe there are some of you here listening who you're finding yourself that you're on the bleachers. You're, you're just simply cheering on others. Or you're like, ooh, like, yeah, go, go pastor. Or man, I wish I could be like those missionaries. They're so good. I, I can't do anything like that. Get up off the bleachers and get in the race. We're called to all make disciples. And maybe some of you are on the ground and you're struggling. Get back up, endure. Look to the prize that lies ahead, spending an eternity with Jesus. Maybe some of us, we're, we're clinging to the past. We're not willing to make disciples and to go out and to actually tell people about Jesus because we're too busy looking backwards. And that weight, it's holding us down. We're clinging and holding that weight. And it's making us ineffective Christians. Let go of it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Remember what he did for you and what we have waiting for us. And maybe some of you are not even at the race. Maybe you just hear it from far away. Maybe you don't know who Jesus is. I encourage you with this. You have a Savior. You have a God who loves you. A God who saw you and said, I'm going to die for you even though you don't deserve it. And the Bible says if you put your hope and your faith and your trust in Jesus alone and you are able to say, I'm not good, I'm never going to be good, I need to repent and turn from my sins, and you make Jesus your Lord and your Savior. A Savior meaning he, he came to save you and the Lord being he's in control of your life and you listen to him because he's your master, then the Bible says we can obtain that prize at the end of our race. So church, are, are, are we ready? On your mark, get set, let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you, God, for who you are and just the simple fact that we sang earlier that you are good. Jesus, I just pray, Lord, that we can keep our eyes fixed upon you. God, that if we are struggling in this race, if we keep getting knocked down, if we're just looking out from the bleachers, cheering others on. I pray, Lord, that you give us the boldness to get up, to be in that race, to strive in our faith, to grow in our faith, and not be content with where we're at. God, I pray that we can just find encouragement in the fact that we are loved, that Christ Jesus has made me his own. He made you his own. God, I just pray that we can just be encouraged by that this week. God, I pray that through this time we can continue to love our neighbors in different ways, that we can continue to be the church without having to be at church for this temporary time. God, I pray that we can remember all that you endured, the sacrifice that, that Jesus made on our behalf, and I pray that thinking that way, focusing on that, can lead us into running to you and growing closer to you. So Jesus, we just thank you for what you've done for us, and in your name we pray. Amen.